BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, this is a big one. This is a huge one. Bruce McCullough is here. You may know him from Kids in the Hall. You may know him from Shame Based Man. You may know him for show running, producing, and directing Tall Boys. You may know him for a lot of things. This guy's a legend. This guy... This guy should be on a stamp, you know? He's that kind of kind of cultural uh, hero. Anyway, more on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, thank you, thank you, thank you for all the hard work you do on this show. Really unbelievable, man. Um, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. And if you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that we have this podcast where we talk about punk and we have all sorts of different types of guests on it. Uh, you can also subscribe to it and rate it on iTunes. And thank you to everyone that does do that. Or you can uh, head over to patreon.com slash turned out a punk and a huge thank you to the people that do that and uh, support the show that way and check out some of the stuff we do over there. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible with the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, we like what you do. Just just don't do it in your own pocket. And they've helped me kind of cover the costs of this thing. And that has been very key. So thank you very much to them for doing that. And if you're looking for more fun stuff to check out, please head over to floodmagazine.com and watch some punk as fuck videos where I go to LA, meet up with some punk heroes and do some fun things. Check them out. I think you'll enjoy them. If you, if you like this podcast, you'll, you'll probably enjoy those videos as well. And speaking of enjoying, if you enjoy exceedingly long songs, I believe the final chapter I should know this, but I believe the final chapter of Fucked Up's Year of the Horse should be dropping today, or maybe depending on when you're listening to it, it's already out. So check that song out. It's an hour and a half long song that we've done featuring uh, a lot of cool guests on it. And yeah, very, very proud of that thing. So check it out. It's over there at bandcamp.com slash fucked up. Yeah, that sounds about right. I don't even know when the song is coming out. So how do you expect me to know the URL? I'm sure you can find it on the internet. Okay, on to today's show. Today on the show, we have, oh my gosh, a legend. This is a huge guest for for not just myself, but so many people I've talked to. And I think that's because the Kids in the Hall, the impact that show had is, is just so profound. And we get into all this on the show, so I'm not going to 
go over it again, but I just, I don't know. I, I just can't overstate how important that show was in my life and, and certainly in the life of a lot of my friends and, and peers and people I know. So, yeah, but also he did this record that I mentioned off the top, Shame Based Man. And this thing, I believe, has completely been out of print forever. It never came out on vinyl. This record, it's got, I, it's been a long time since I listened to it, but for my money, it was the best comedy record. <laughs> I love this thing so much. And he has just been that force, you know, and I, I got to interview him years ago on Q, but as I say to him here, that show's very produced. And so the questions I was asking him were coming from a producer and let's face it, 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 it wasn't this. And, uh, you know, I had, I had the experience of interviewing him there and it was fine. It was great. You know, we had, we had a fun time, but this, Oh, Oh, I'm not going to ramble on anymore because I want you to hear this thing. It, it's a good one. Bruce McCullough's got like some of the best tastes in music of anyone I've ever met. Yeah, I'm, you'll hear it in a second. Uh, we talk about a lot of great records in this episode, a lot of great Canadian uh, obscure punk records that are impossible to get the originals of. And if you do get them, they will cost you a pretty penny. But luckily, a great label named Ugly Pop Records that is, I believe, now defunct reissued a lot of this stuff. So when you hear us talk about these bands, uh, you know, you can find them reissued by Ugly Pop Records. So to check out this stuff. We also mentioned Captured Tracks on the show, which is a another label that, well, you'll hear that. That that gets featured kind of prominently in this episode, but you'll hear that in a second. Also, check out stuff that's on uh, Reminder Records. It's an incredible label out of New York. Just put out the Jax LP, and it's got the Cassie record. Like, there's this is something Bruce and I talked about off-air, and I felt like since we we're highlighting these other labels, should highlight that. The Jax record, we talked about on the Bob Mole record, Features replacements and Bob Mole from Husker Du. How wild is that? Now you can finally hear it. And believe me, it lives up to the hype. I had hyped this thing up so much in my mind and to hear it. Oh, I was glad. I was glad. Anyway, we, Bruce and I talked about that off air, so I felt I should throw that in there as well. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Uh, Bruce is producing, as I mentioned off the top, or executive producing, show running, and directing a hilarious show with a comedy troupe called The Tall Boys. It's on CBC Gem. You can check it out now on streaming platforms. If you're in America, I think you can watch CBC Gem. Uh, you know, maybe you maybe you have to find it other places. But anyway, it's also aired on TV as well on the CBC. It must be sh- somewhere in America you can find it. But check out the show, The Tall Boys. It, it's hilarious. And once again, Bruce is heavily involved in it as well. So if you need that stamp, it's there for you. All right. I, I think that's it. I don't, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Get comfortable. This is a good one. Oh, I love doing this one. This is oh, this is, what, this is why we do the show. This is why we do the show. All right. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Bruce McCullough on Turned Out a Punk. Amazing. Bruce, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm happy to do it. Anything punk, I'm there. Well, as I was just telling you off air years ago, I got to interview during like the the hardest week of my life hosting Q and uh, they it was very heavily scripted and they wouldn't let me ask you any of the nerdy punk questions that I wanted to ask you. So now I feel free from the reins of the CBC and able to truly punish you. F them with their F them perfect. (laughs) Their big atrium that no one uses. Go to hell. (laughs) Right. Exactly. We got a. I got a basement here. I don't need an atrium. Yeah. You know, that's that's all. I don't I have an atrium. I, I, you know, I have a lanai, but you know, I've done well for myself. So a man has an outdoor room. You know. <laughs> oh, we're gonna get there. Yeah. We're definitely gonna get to how you got the lanai. But before we get there, I got to start off the way they all start off, which is Bruce. How did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um. Well, I'm an old old man, so I was I was there at the beginning. I mean, I you know I loved music that was sort of a a predecessor to it, like be it that T-Rex or Slade or whatever that was. But I actually remember being in a, the the one and only cool um, used record store in Calgary and them playing uh, God Save the Queen as a 45. And it blew my fucking mind. Well, I know I've read in your book, you talk about being into Hawkwind and stuff like that. So you were already into kind of like, you know, esoteric kind of hard to find stuff. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was searching whatever, whatever it was. It, it, it's so interesting. I actually, 
I actually saw a documentary on the band last night and I thought, and I was talking to my wife and it's like, no, that was ne- like, that's my music now, but no, that had nothing to do with a young man's anger. And so, yeah, I, but I was into, I was into the greasy rock that was the predecessor, you know, be it deep purple, deep purple was my first concert. I was 13. I did acid. Um, and then I, you know, that started to seem stupid to me as people like jumped around on stage and, you know, and, living in Calgary, you didn't get the really good band. So you got the odd one. Like I said, T-Rex came, but, but Nazareth came. So all the kind of greasy, you know, rock bands came. And so I was always searching for something, but like, again, a different kind of thing. I remember being obsessed with wishbone ash, you know, and all Mm. kinds of stuff like Mm. that, but nothing organized my anger better than punk. Yeah, for talking to people on the show, it really feels like a lot of people that were around for when it first hit were spending that sort of pre-period, like finding things that were kind of like, kind of there, but like you're saying, just weren't really scratching the itch. Yeah, and once it was there, it was just, you know, it was, it, it couldn't go away. It was almost like um, how another person would find their sexuality. You know, I, I, I the only thing akin to it was for me walking in to loose moose theater and seeing improv sports and going, Oh my God, this is my thing. But for me, you know, from the age 13 to probably 25, the most important thing in my life was music. What were you into kind of before, you know, uh, where were you kind of discovering the stuff that you were into before? Like, were you like, it's not really played on the radio or anything like that. No, it was always, you know, and obviously this was a thousand years before the internet. So people, people had a thing that they played, you know, I was, you know, the band that always made the kids in the hall cool, which is Shadowy Men from a Shadowy Planet. Um, two of the members are I've known since uh, grade seven, and they're two years older than me. So one of them had Johnny Winter live, so I could understand what that felt like. And then the other had kind of, as I say, like, you know, uh, I'm trying to, you know, the kinks. And, and the weirdness of, of that kind of, in a way, concept album and all that stuff. So I had that, I had sort of older brothers who, you know, are still sending me the cool thing, um, but, but basically sat me down and, you know, I, uh, my mind was blown and they said, okay, and if your mind's blown there, let's go farther. Let's go to this one, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, it's funny. Cause like, all that stuff that was happening just before, like, you know, like it, it's, it's, you needed those people to kind of give it to you because like you're saying, there's no internet. It's not being played on the radio. Rock magazines are kind of hard to find, especially the stuff that's like covering cool stuff. So you kind of need that, that sort of older brother type figure to go or older sibling type figure, I should say, to just give you something. Yeah. And also um, your viewers or listeners will not know this, but there was a time when you could know every record in the record store. And so you would go through the record store. And if there was a record that came up, Milk and Cookies, it's like a, one of the first boy bands. Who, who are these people? And it's like, oh, it's kind of weird. I sort of like it. And so everything, everything was like, you were like a detective, like looking for, looking for things. And so you would find something. Oh, who's Taste? Who's Rory Gallagher? Oh, that's sort of boogie rock. But is it like and so anything that you hadn't heard of, you would listen to. And so that was that was a thing. And so when something new came in and something new could, of course, just as easily then been something used, um, you know, be it Paul Revere and the Raiders and there or the Trogs, mm-hmm. right? All that stuff, that guitar sound that sort of predates the stuff that everybody loved. It's like, oh, this there's something here that I don't quite understand. When you said milk and cookies there, my jaw nearly hit the floor because like now it's been reissued. It's kind of a little more well-known, but I talked to people from New York from that time period and they don't even know that band. Like it's, that's like a really deep cut. Like you found that record in the used store. Yeah. That's and awesome. I, I, and listen, I didn't know it'd been reissued. I hadn't thought of milk and cookies in a hundred <laughs> years. And so, but it, it, it's just like looking at the cover of something and wondering what it is. I mean, it was a little later. I remember walking to the record store and seeing the, the queen the first queen mm-hmm. record that must have been 73 it's like obviously not punk but it's like what is this oh i'm gonna buy it you know because you bought 
whatever was there. And sometimes it was a disappointment. Yeah. And sometimes it was, you know, sometimes it was Mark Almond and it wasn't, didn't suit you, <laughs> but sometimes it was Queen. Yeah. Well, it's also like what you're saying. It's that search for stuff that's not mainstream. It's like looking at what all your peers are into and being like, yeah, that's not really it for me. Well, and, and it's also, you know, the spirit of punk. It's, you know, I'm, I loved the, the Patti Smith, Just Kids book. And actually also the Dylan book that he wrote about himself. And he, you know, I'm, I, I'm not an artist in, in their category or, but I remember, you know, walking around trying to find myself, trying to find myself in the weird objects of the, uh, you know, secondhand store, be it a weird book, you know, or of course, the most important thing is music. And in the same way, Patti Smith hadn't been quite a person. She, she was into poetry and she was sort of into weird music. And so was Dylan. And they were just looking for it. They were looking for it in the actual library, in old photos and trying to find a different way. Now it's beautiful that people can find each other on the internet. And, and if you like milk and cookies, then you'll also like so-and-so. Um, it didn't happen then. It was, you know, a, a wild goose chase. Yeah, like a quest, like you're saying, like you had to look through books, you had to dig through record stores to to get there. And it was a quest for yourself. And it was also, you know, especially, you know, I don't know where you grew up, but it was in growing up in Calgary where, I, you know, I was considered an FAG for wearing anything that wasn't cowboy boots and chased down the street. So it, it was really a search for yourself and what what you responded to these weird these weird people like who's screaming Lord such. Why is he wearing that? Is he like me? You know, and uh, uh, it, it's kind of, and it didn't always work. You could spend weeks and months buying buying crappy stuff and taking the bus to the used record store and not find it. But when you found it, and when they played "God Save the Queen," you had it. Yeah, well, and it, it's it's you know, you say you're not an artist on par with Dylan or, or Patti Smith, but I would I would definitely argue that you you are. You know, and I think Kids in the Hall had that same effect on on people and brought you know, a different way of viewing the world right into people's living room. Like, and I'm talking, I grew up in downtown Toronto. So I had a lot of privilege in the fact that I had access to cool record stores and things like that. But like, you're beaming that into people's living rooms that, you know, are, are, in, are in places that don't even have one cool record store like Calgary had. Right. Yeah. No. Well, thank you for that. And also, you know, even as I, you know, done some stuff with some of the first nations uh, who are I, kids to me, they're like, no, Kids in the Hall was the only show that we got and I'm queer and I, I, it meant a lot to me. So, you know, I, I don't put myself on par with anybody, but I, you know, and our work is in somewhat important because it, it can respond to, you know, the needs of a lot of people who are outsiders like me, which is, and all of it comes and all of the, it comes through the Kids in the Hall, through the Shadowy Man, the music is the spirit of punk. Yeah, well, that's the other thing, like that theme song, you know, like the fact that shadowy men are are like that song is ubiquitous. Like you grew up anywhere in a, in Canada, you you know that song, and the fact that that song was able to kind of achieve that, I think, is a testament to how important that show was. Yeah, and you know, we always said the shadowy men made us cool, um, <laughs> and I uh, they still do. Um, you know, what would have that been if we'd done like, you know funk of the day or you know whatever the tonight show was doing or you know i remember lauren michaels hated the music he said oh it sounds like a strip club uh, and it's oh like and that's we the coolest thought, strip club on earth yeah i just thought oh that's kind of a i haven't been in a strip club but you know, maybe i'll start to go you know it's just oh that's amazing sorry i didn't mean to cut you off with that but that's that i've, I've definitely heard that from other people that have been on the show that you know his his taste in music isn't the reason that you had Devo and the B-52s on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> no, there, there was younger younger people around who knew who to hire, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's it's one of those things where, you know, like imagine if you, you had said, like if you had gone with the music that was popular at that time, that was getting play on Canadian radio at that time, like I can't even think who they would have stuck you with. Like there's so many bad bands from that era. Well, I don't, I actually don't know what it really was. I mean, you know, Nirvana dropped sort of the first year we were doing the show I think um but I feel like you know and I love me some April wine but I feel like <laughs> April wine um and I love the guests too as well but it's like it's more probably in that vein 
or it would be like pithy, you know, saxophone music. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It would have been, it definitely wouldn't have been that. Um, I guess going back to your journey, like where did you go after hearing the Sex Pistols? Well, I got my second uh, single was called The Users. Oh my God, Um, dude, you've got the best taste. Well, and I, it was just the one that was there. Um, And, you know, then I felt like I I got every single that they, they sent. Um, And so it was, I just bought whatever, uh, you know, and who did, uh, um, oh, this is the part you can, you can cut out the blonde, the blondies. The Blondie song, uh, song. The Nerves. The Nerves, Waiting by, by the Phone. Like you, I, you got that, that single's like, that's like a $300 record now plus because it's so rare. And like, just the fact that that's showing up is, is mind blowing to me. Yeah, well, it's all all that stuff, all the, you know, and uh, and I really got in and we, and because I was in Calgary, like we got The Dills. I don't know if you know The Dills, oh, which, God, was, yeah. which was like my favorite band. And I, you know, for me, I always loved, and you know, it, it started. And when it, when I started listening, then it started and, you know, the black flag came through Calgary, Husker do came through Calgary. Um, and I ended up loving Husker do, but to be quite frank, the black flag in the NSFU, like it was too, I didn't like the fight punk. It wasn't, I kind of liked the romantic punk music. I liked Husker do later on. I loved the buzzcocks. You know, I loved the damned, all that stuff. And that stuff started showing up. Like you could get the damned in the used record store. Um, it would be like $24 <laughs> for this import. It's like, oh Christ, oh God, you know. Um, and then the stiffs, you know, Ian Drury and those guys, like I didn't quite know what to do with them. I thought they were going to be good, but, you know. And so basically anything that was punk, I I sort of uh, ingested. Yeah. Uh, um, until it, you know, it became a bigger thing and then it was everywhere. And then, you know, at first, you know, there was just only when I started, you know, I guess that was 73, 70, there was only singles. And then eventually, uh, never mind the Bullocks came out and the first Clash record came out. Um, and Another Girl, Another Planet came out. Um, who are those guys? Uh, 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 only Ones. Yeah, the only ones came out. Yeah, and that was that was sort of the stuff that I and I think took me like the sort of mournful stuff a little bit that was sort of sad and beautiful, not that wasn't just angry, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I listened to all of that stuff I could until it became like there was shows, there was there was some shows in Canada, and there was some bands in Canada or sorry in Calgary that played, and then because there's so few places to play in a sense in Canada, we started to get the, uh, the great uh, Vancouver punks came mm-hmm. through, mm-hmm. you know, the modernettes, the pointed sticks um, and people like that. Well, yeah, like that you, and you had the modernettes and I think pointed sticks as well, or definitely the pointed sticks on your show too, even a soundtrack, right? Yes. When I did young drunk punk, I, you know, the great joy of that was being able to get all the, uh, all the bands, that I loved mm-hmm. uh, on, on my soundtrack. And, but it was all, for me, it was sort of bifurcated that um, some of it was happening in Vancouver and most of it was happening in uh, uh, Toronto. And so that was, without punk music, there would have been, I don't think any kids in the hall. And without my obsession with moving to Toronto, because that's where the diodes and the vile tones lived. Yeah. Um, I don't think there would have been a kids in the Hulk and my friends in the shadowy men actually moved out from Calgary in uh, 82 and I was busting and we, our, 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 our troop, which included Mark McKinney then and a bunch of other people, um, we were kind of really quite successful in Calgary. Um, and Mark just wanted to stay and cause he's, that's sort of his nature. And he thought maybe we should go to Vancouver. And it's like, no, we are going to Toronto. And part of the reason mostly I wanted to go to Toronto is because that's where the music was. It's really interesting to hear you say that too, because, you know, obviously being from Toronto, I've got like a huge place in my heart for all these bands, but like at the same time, you like look at all the stuff that was coming out of Vancouver. Like it almost seems like that was the bigger, more vibrant punk scene back then, you know, like the bands you all mentioned, 
are, 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 you know, legends now. Yeah. Um, I don't like, I, I don't know for me, it was, and maybe just that, uh, Toronto was cool. I remember Don Pyle, who's the, the drummer of shadow men for shadow planet sent me out a ticket to see the damned. And maybe it was the edge. Maybe it was somewhere else. It was like 325 or 350. And I just had it up on my bulletin board forever. Yeah. And I didn't go because I couldn't go. And he spent, you know, 350, which is like a thousand dollars to me now, to send me a ticket to a show he knew I probably couldn't come to. And, you know, as just a beacon saying, come out, yeah. come out where it's all happening, you know, and of course, eventually I did. So where were you, those Toronto records, I guess, were making their way across uh, the country as well. Like you were picking like the Valtone singles up and things like that. Yeah. Uh, the Val, Well, and I think they were right at the beginning there was, was, you know, right with uh, God Save the Queen, et cetera, was the Teenage Head, mm-hmm. Picture My Face, which still, still is one of the greatest songs ever. I couldn't get it for Young Drunk Punk. Um, one of the best songs, yeah, of all time, yeah. as you're saying. And the diodes, which, you know, um, uh, who was it? Uh, Standing in the laneway of love. You'll have to look that up. Um, Standing in the laneway of love. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, man. That is, is it, it's not the ugly. Yes, the ugly. Yeah. 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 So those were making their way to Calgary and and teasing me that I had to go and, and move there. And eventually we did were the legends of these bands kind of making their way across? Like obviously the vile tones, it's, it's very storied. Like Steve lucky would be cutting himself up on stage and the ugly have this, you know, very notorious reputation of being like, like a, basically a gang in Toronto. Like were, were you hearing those kind of legends? That no, time? I, no, I just got the songs and I like, mm-hmm. I, to be honest, I never, well, I, you know, I saw the vile tones and a bunch of those other bands, but I, I never, never heard a word about the ugly till right now. I just had that song. And okay, so, yeah. so we got the music and then, and then when I eventually went, you know, and I took a couple trips um, to Toronto, basically just to hear music. Um, and uh, I got to see, I got to go to the edge and even Larry's hideaway where I got not one, but two black eyes. And, you know, sometimes a guy punches you and then his girlfriend punches you. Um, and so I got to be immersed in what, you know, and here in Toronto, it was the Rivoli and the Queen Mom and all the people who, who worked there and I think did drugs all night. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it, there was the culture there was a, a counterculture of sharing, which is the punk ethic too. Of uh, you got no money, I got some money. I got some noodles. You can have half my noodles. You need a place to crash. I know a place to crash. And so I I, I wasn't ever uh, part of the beautiful part of punk, which is and we know how how sweet sold most punks are. There was kind of, we're all in this together. We don't know what we're doing. We have this music. We have some money. We've got a little bit of liquor. Oh, oh, I put my hand through the window and broke it. Oh, maybe you can help me, you know, get some money tomorrow to fix it. Like it was kind of like, we were all in this together that I, that I felt in Toronto that I had never felt other than my three friends in Calgary. Well, I think the, the scene you're arriving in, in Toronto, and obviously you guys help usher this in, but like that cool Queen Street kind of scene is is like, that's like the post-punk, right? Like the people from the Hi-Fi's becoming Blue Rodeo and Handsome Ned and all this kind of like cool Queen Street. Like those are all the people that kind of come out, I guess, of that Toronto punk scene or people that would have been going to those early shows, I guess. Yeah, but I felt like when we arrived in Toronto, because we arrived 84 and kind of had a bad year where we didn't really know what to do. Mm. And... I think super good music wasn't, didn't feel like it was around. Yeah. No disrespect to the parachute club, but it was more the parachute club was taking over and kind of some other sort of stuff that wasn't, that wasn't aggressive uh, or wasn't, you know, what I had signed up for in a way. Uh, Mm. And so Toronto didn't seem as cool in 84 as it certainly did in 82 and 83 when I took trips out here. Yeah. It's kind of like the after the gold rush thing where that punk thing's kind of petering off and the next things hasn't really started yet. Yeah. And I think, you know, Don Pyle wrote an excellent book called panic in the Cameron house. And it, mm-hmm. you know, he makes a really great point in it, which is like, as all things, when you're young, I think it seemed like this had gone on forever, this phase of, 
you know, the vile tones, the ugly, you know, whoever, but it was only like a year and a half long. It burnt itself out. And even some of the bands that were amazing didn't make amazing records. And no teenage head record ever felt as good as the teenage head did live. And so Mm. it was, it kind of burned and went away in some sense, um, even though there was some great stuff, but it was like, it was gone. And then after it was gone, like, I don't really, and also I got swept up in comedy in a way. So in 85, I don't even know what was happening musically in, you know, in Toronto, we're sort of waiting for the lowest of the low to arrive or whoever. Uh, But it felt like there was a real low in which if I would arrogantly say anything, kind of the kids in the hall helped fill that hole until the next thing came along a little bit. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, like, what about the bands like the BFGs and, and kind of like the the like harder core stuff that was happening in Toronto at that time? Was that at all on your radar? Or like you're saying, you're just... No, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. And I, you know, I actually, as much as I love punk and all the spirit of it and some of the energy, energy and anger of it, I actually love melody. And so I do love to hum a song i don't and i actually don't want to i've never stage dived nor do i want to <laughs> and i never want you know I, i've been in bar fights but i have to be careful I, you know i have a cute little nose i can't break my nose and so th- there is a line i always had you know which was there was something stuff that was too dark black flag just i couldn't get into it and you know i couldn't get into the doc martin martins i'd rather wear white nurse's shoes that i would covered in mud and so there was, there's just some part that wasn't that interesting to me. Um, and then I just kept going toward the damned and those bands that felt like they were, they were also asking questions in a way, you know? And yeah. as I talked to my young son, who's 14 about, you know, and he's super into rap music. Um, and it's like, I said, yeah, I like these stuff. I like that these guys have this big ego, but they're, they're talking about themselves. They're not talking about the world. And I think that's the thing. I always loved about the clash and all those bands. They, they were talking about the world. They weren't like, they weren't going, you know, the notorious clash are in the town tonight. Like it was, it was really this worldview that the kids in the hall and has, or maybe I have, or we all have, which is like, it doesn't have to be like this. And so that's, that's what I've always been attracted to. Not the, not the, not the fight of it. I, I guess going back to Calgary, what was the first show you, you went to as far as like, you know, what you describe as a punk show? I think it probably was Black Flag in, a, in, a, in an alternative space. And I didn't really know what I was getting into uh, there. Um, and then soon there was a, an excellent band that sort of became the Pursuit of Happiness called The Modern Minds, who... Oh, amazing band. Yeah, yeah, who was really like, that was... I just thought they were the greatest band. They may have been the greatest band in the world still, but it was like, they came through and they're from Edmonton and they were weird and geeky and amazing. So it was sort of, sort of those, those shows uh, and sort of the ones I mentioned, the, the, the Vancouver people coming through, starting to come through the, the modernettes, et cetera. What about bands like the hot nasties or the golden Calgarians? Like, did you see them ever play? They were later. Um, for some reason, I never, you know, I never, I don't want to say I didn't love the golden Calgarians, but they were just, they, they didn't feel as I, I, I could tell that they picked up their guitars because other people had before them. And mm-hmm. I don't think I didn't feel that with the sex pistols. I didn't feel mm-hmm. like I, they felt like the second wave, which I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't glom onto in the same way as much as I love Paul Westerberg and the replacements it felt like they weren't the first ones who did it. They just did it well, but someone else had done it, I think. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Definitely. Um, but like, what about like, uh, what were some of the local Calgary bands that you liked? Even bands that didn't wind up putting out records. Like, were there any that you kind of gravitate towards? There weren't really bands. There, there were just, a co- like, really, there was just the, mo- all I really remember is the Modern Minds. And there probably mm-hmm. was, and I think because I left so early, I left in 84, I, I don't know if the Gal- Golden Calgarians had even started then. I'm probably wrong. They probably had. Um, but I think, I, I think I was out of there so fast that I didn't, I didn't think about what, um, you know, what was happening. I know there was a band that I quite liked from Edmonton called the Rock and Roll Bitches. 
I was just about to ask you about that. Yeah, no, I well, they were friends of mine. I went to I went to school with Ken Mackay, uh, who was in that band, and he he and I used to he used to record with a tape recorder his parents fighting, um, and then we would go in his Nova and listen to it and drink beer, and <laughs> and you know he I remember they did a thing called the Welder song, Lord, not another Welder, Dad, I'd rather be dead, and that was based on a tape that he had of his. Scottish drunk father, you know, he could have been in the kids in the hall with a father like that, um, complaining to his, about his son that he should be a welder. And so I knew those guys and they were, you know, th that was, I actually moved in grade 11, I moved from Calgary to Edmonton and Ken Mackay and an actor you may or may not know, um, Callum Keith Rennie. Uh, oh, yeah. we, we went to high school with and so we saw you know I remember just you know being in Edmonton seeing Modern Minds and seeing 999 and those sort of bands and and it was it really kind of was close it wasn't the best year, couple years of my life I think there was some it was sort of the fighting culture a little bit that took over um, you know a little bit mm -hmm. but uh those were the only bands I, I sort of remember. Yeah, uh, it's it's amazing you bring up, you know, Callum Keith Rennie and you also bring up like Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet, yourself. Like, it just feels like punk is always this incubator that draws all these people that wind up doing, you know, like huge things culturally or, or big things culturally. You know, it's just it just seems like it's like moths to a, to a light bulb or something. Like the way it draws these people in that wind up doing things later in life. Yeah, and I... I mean, it's, I, I don't understand what it is now. Like, I don't even know if there's a punk scene now, but. Oh, there is. Yeah, definitely. But then it's sort of, it was a receptacle for every, every weirdo, um, you know, and it, and of course it harkens to Lou Reed and it harkens to the cramps and all these bands that aren't necessarily quote unquote punk. I guess the cramps would be for sure, but it's, mm. It it it's more about the worldview, and there's now there's a thousand places for people to go for their culture that is not like us. Be it you know graphic novels, or you know people share their sexual fetishes online, or whatever it is. There was none of that. There was no other place to catch it other than punk, and it it had the umbrella of weird, certainly gay people, people who didn't know they were gay people who had all kinds of other things going on and people who, you know, came from rough backgrounds or, or parents who were abusive or whatever it is, there was not a lot of other places for them to go. And this was the place that they went. Mm -hmm. uh, did the guys from shadowy men uh, have a band when they were in Calgary? Um, yeah, they had a few and I can't remember. Uh, they had a band called Buick McCain. Okay. Um, yeah. And then when they came here, um, they were a band called Crash Kills Five. Yeah, um, absolutely. And had a very cool single called "What Do You Do at Night." Um, and uh, and then that was that was when they had a vocalist. Uh, actually, Don Pyle was the vocalist who ended up being the drummer. And then they sort of reemerged as the Shadowy Men. Yeah, no, that single is incredible. Like it's just. It's amazing the the breadth of like just independent great records that are coming out in Canada at that time just by like, you know, kids. Well, and that was the only way to do it, you know, and then it was like, I remember Reed taking them to the rec used record store and he would take in 10 and we'd go back two days later and two would be sold. And so he could ask the guy at the front desk for, you know, his four dollars or whatever. Um, and, you know, it was it was the original like do it yourself kind of time. Right. Yeah. Uh, last time I interviewed you, just before we went off air, you mentioned uh, like kind of a terrible sounding assault that happened to you at the Dead Kennedy show. Are you able to talk about that? Um, well, you know, I've just I've been in a couple fights. I mean, okay. um, no, you said you said I think you said you got stabbed, if I remember correctly, or, or certainly or like physically assaulted. No, not a Dead Kennedy show. I, you know, I came home with a knife wound from the Calgarian Hotel. Um, uh, I think that was a Husker Du show, actually. So I'm, wow. I may be conflating a couple, you know, but that was the old days when you get an, when you get cut, your arm gets cut, you just wrap your arm in a jean jacket and keep drinking. Um, and then I 
kept my arm away from my father who I was living at home and then phoned Monday when I was working at Canada Dry and said, oh, I just fell off the dock and I cut myself, you know, so, yeah. um, but, uh, but I think that was as much, um, it was sort of, I never got beat up by punks. I never fought with punks. It was, it was the changing culture of Calgary, which is uh, cowboys would go to beat up punks and uh, punks would, uh, would resist. And so it was more that, and it was more, mm -hmm. you know, being called an FAG and being chased down the street and you wanting to stand your ground because that's what you had to do. So it was more that. Yeah, like it seems like that would be like it, it's, you know, like you hear about stuff that was happening in Toronto at that time. And it's very much seems like a lot of it was punk on punk kind of violence. But it really much seems like in other places it was outsiders attacking the punks. Yeah. And by the way, there was 40 of us. There, there, you know, and maybe there wasn't yeah. even 40 of us. So it, it was that. So we're, I guess also all these bands are kind of coming through because, you know, DOA had been through and established this kind of touring circuit by this point. Like, had, did you ever see DOA? Yeah. I imagine you must have. Yep. Yeah. And I love, I love them too. Like, um, but I do think that there was something with, with them and SFNU. SN yeah. SNFU. Yeah. It was just like those shows were a little scarier. So if you were going to go to those shows, it was just a little scarier than going to see the Modernettes or something. You know, it was, I, and I don't know if I was in into that, uh, which was, it, it did feel a bit more about violence than it did about the music, I think. Yeah. So you mentioned coming to Toronto a, a few times. Like, what were some of the bands you saw? Like, you, you, you said you saw the Vile Tones? Saw the Vile Tones. I remember you know, and the Buzzcocks and the Cramps and um, I think the Damned. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, you know, it was, it was the, the edge was there. Um, and it, it was sort of uh, the Beverly had a lot of bands and Larry's Hideaway was sort of kind of changing over from rock. Uh, and they had some cool bands. Um, mm -hmm. And then Pero Ubu which I didn't quite understand at the time. Um, and sort of bands like that, I think. Would you plan these trips based on who was going to be in town? Or is it just like, you're like, I'm going to be in Toronto. It's luck of the draw. Who's going to be playing? Yeah. And I, I, like I had, you know, the first time I came, it was like the Vile Tones were playing tonight. They're playing tonight. They're playing at the edge. It's like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. So no, it was just, um, and that was the old days when you would just fly standby. Um, and yeah. came and just, you know, saw whatever I could for 10 days. And then I was back to, to Calgary. You mentioned earlier walking in and seeing uh, impro improv for the first time. What were your tastes in comedy kind of prior to that? Like, what were some of your early comedy tastes? Um, weird comedy. Like, I, I certainly liked, you know, I'm not supposed to say it now, the Woody Allen records. I thought th those mm. were crazy and weird. Um, I, but I was sort of into the beats a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. you know, there's, um, Shorty Pedersteen, uh, was a guy who was sort of in with the beats who, uh, did some weird, weird stuff. And he's sort of on, he was a comedian that actually my dad, who was a jazz cat had, uh, his records and they were like really obtuse. Um, and you can kind of find him in sort of beat collections. Uh, with with William Burroughs or whatever, um, but I I sort of like that stuff. And my dad, uh, who saw Lenny Bruce in Montreal, uh, had le like Lenny Bruce records and things like that. I kind of understood it and I kind of didn't. But uh, you know, comedy was never my thing. I never watched Saturday Night Live. I never, you know. So comedy was I didn't care that much about comedy until I was doing it myself. So what was it that drew you to it eventually? Is it the energy that you, that you see on stage or? Yeah, I think there's almost, there's almost a sexual energy of coming up with your own material in terms of improv and how dangerous that is. I think it almost is like, uh, like music. And I, I had put in a lot of energy into dressing sort of crazy pajama top, two ties, little cowboy boots, whatever. Uh, and then when I found comedy, I didn't care anymore. I just, I didn't care about how I dressed. I just cared about comedy. And it was literally like, 
a door opened and like, I didn't close my door on music, but it was like, I, I had found an outlet that I'd been searching for that I didn't understand that I was searching for. You know, I, I, I'd been writing down weird ideas, you know, that didn't make sense. I'd carry little notebooks. I didn't know what they were for. I probably thought I'd be a writer for National Lampoon in my dreams, but I didn't, I didn't know there was a thing called comedy. I'd never seen a stand-up. I'd never seen a troupe. You know, there was no yuck yucks. There was no second city. So I, I think the punk part of our comedy was we started doing comedy when, and we'd never seen it. So we would just do a weird blue light and then a weird red light and we'd walk from one to the other. So I do feel like there's something that we started that was, you know, we would do a beat poetry every show and with weird flashlights and things and pull people up and find weird objects. So I think that there was something akin to punk, like we we're making up a thing that we were only imagining that didn't exist before, even though, of course, comedy and sketch was, you know, by then 50 years old. Well, like, was it more kind of like a performance art thing than than like a, you know, what, like a comedy show, straight up comedy show? Some of it certainly was, you know, mm. and for me, it was more important, the Iggy Pop music that we played between sketches than it yeah. was, you know, and then I, I, when I first came to Toronto, I was like second city with their goddamn piano music and their corny, shitty white lighting. I thought, what is this crap? You know? Yeah. Um, and, and it was sort of the same thing in Yuck Yucks, although it was, you could have the world's worst like magician one and then you know, 10 minutes later, Sam Kinison would be on. So it was, it was very hit or miss. Um, but yeah, there was, we're doing a thing that was its own, that was more theatrical for sure um, than anything else. Yeah. Like, cause you guys ultimately, and there's, you know, it kind of seems like it happens from other people that have been on the podcast. They're in parts of America. Like it's almost happening almost simultaneously, but it's like a punking of comedy that kind of happens where, people start getting sick of the stuff that you're describing of the second cities of the world and, you know, running these little shows and kind of doing weird stuff. Like, you know, David Cross was talking about them doing it in Boston, which I guess would have been maybe a few years later, but, you know, came same sort of thing, getting just rejecting what comedy was and kind of building your own world. Yeah. And all those people, you know, um, everyone, not everyone, everyone who like, I'll say it, everyone who likes cat power, likes kids in the hall. And it's, you know, it's, it's, of course not, probably cat power doesn't know who the fuck we are. Um, but it's like, I'm sure she's a fan. I guarantee I you guarantee she's a fan, a fan too. Um, <laughs> it's like, it's the like, there is a, obviously, and we found it later as of course, all the people, you know, who came up to us later, I don't know how Johnny Rotten found the kids in the hall, but it's like, <laughs> There's there's a confluence. What's the thing? Confluence when two things. Confluence. Yeah, yeah I guess. Of, yeah. Of sort of, it's probably the literature. It's probably the weird, you know, the the weird bookstore in every town that you could give a reading in. Still, I could go and do a really kind of beat poetry reading, and then I'd get 150 people. Like it's mm. that's the like-minded people. There's a, there's a and comedy kind of came later. There there wasn't there wasn't really cool comedy going around that I knew about. Um, and there certainly wasn't cool comedy when I came or we came to Toronto. That's for sure. Well, yeah. Like the type of comedy that you're describing, which I guess, you know, Lenny Bruce, obviously, and, and the beats and stuff is like the, the type of comedy that you guys, I guess, develop, you know, is, is like this sort of like, I don't know, like a certain cynical kind of take on comedy that I can't think of stuff that predates it doing that stuff other than, you know, as we say, Lenny Bruce and, and some of the other stuff you've mentioned. Yeah. It's sort of outsider stuff. And it's like, you know, Lauren once said, well, you guys are entertainers. Lauren Michael said it. And I thought to myself, fuck you. I am not an entertainer. And, you know, I don't, I, I think there was people who were entertainers doing comedy, like how are we all doing tonight? And I don't think, I don't think we ever did that. I mean, we wanted to put on a super cool show whatever that meant but that didn't mean we weren't going to shuffle on the stage in a certain way in a certain half light and so there's something about not just trying to please the audience which is what it felt second city and yuck yucks were sort of doing uh it's it's trying to express yourself in some way i think well yeah exactly like we're describing like you know 
rock and roll is entertainers, you know, like the idea of like, you're trying to bring people in, like, come, like barking people into the tent type thing. Whereas punk rock and certainly the type of comedy that you guys are doing has always felt to me like, oh, you don't get it. Well, well, fuck you. It's not for you. I, yeah, I think so. And it's like, that's why, you know, I mean, we got, we were successful for, for whatever reason, maybe there's just a vacuum in Calgary. I was thumping out my base doing the Daves I know, and people were going crazy for it. I don't know why. <laughs> um, and then I think, yeah, when I think it was actually good for us when we came to Toronto, we were not successful for a long period of time. And it was like, okay, well, we just, we got to keep doing it. We got to keep doing it. We got to keep doing it. And then eventually it worked, but we did have to, we, we had to do it for its art form because for a while we weren't doing it for any other reasons. Mm -hmm. So how much integration was there with the music scene? Like you mentioned being completely separated from the music scene, but eventually that, you know, Queen Street stuff, the lowest of the low stuff starts happening, obviously mouth Congress, like how much integration with the kids in the hall and music was there during these early live shows? Well, I don't think there was any integration, quite frankly. I think mm -hmm. it was, we, you know, we'd go see the lowest of the low they'd probably want to come see us. I think by the time we were doing our thing, it was like I was in a five-year program of, in med school and I didn't have a day to do anything. And all, all we did was do another scene, do another scene, write another scene, do another thing. And we'd go out at night, I suppose. But it was really all, once I found comedy, all I cared about was comedy. And you know, until years later when I could kind of rest, and look up and look around, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I saw you do a, a live performance a few years ago and you talked a lot about Gord Downey and he's, you know, a, a rest in peace, a, a friend of mine and, and uh, someone left a huge void. And I just, I just wanted to talk about a little bit or just talk to you a little bit about the Tragically Hip and kind of finding them. Cause like, like you were saying, they're a band, like the band you mentioned that I came to much later because to me, they were almost part of this ubiquitous culture that, felt like it stand in opposition to the stuff I, I was into. And, you know, only later do I discover like, no, no, he, he was a hundred percent on side. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's odd. Uh, you know, I remember when I first, I first heard of them, I think it was the first year of the show or it might've been before. Uh, uh, it's the last American exit to my hometown, which he would never do live for me, the prick. Um, and it, it was, I, I took to them slowly because their name is so horrible. Uh, they don't care about hip, the tragically hip. What kind of name that has nothing to do with who they are. And, yeah. and so, um, but, but hearing the music and seeing them, I remember also, I saw, I became friends with them. I went to South by Southwest when I did shame based man and they were there and I'd never seen them live, even though they've been playing around in Toronto. And that's when, Junior Brown came on. I don't know if you know that country guy. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think, oh, who else was on? Someone else we like. Um, oh, now I'm getting Alzheimer's. Who did Under the Bridge? What's their name? The uh, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers? Yeah, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Whatever. But sandwiched. What a weird bill. And between Holy them shit. was the Tragically Hip. And my God, they oh, were my. amazing. So that was, that was the start of my friendship. First with Gord and then with the whole guys. And you're right, they were their own, you know, if you talk about the band, their own hermetically sealed unit where they would, they were so mysterious and how they wrote songs and that they wrote through, through riffing and then the, the weird poetry of, uh, of Gord. Um, and then they became, you know, I actually lived a block from Gord uh, during the Kids in the Hall days uh, and he'd see me out with my poodle and sort of we became friends for that. And then we started to come to each other's shows and, and, and sort of uh, began a great friendship. You know, Riverdale is such an amazing neighborhood because it just felt like, you know, as a kid growing up there, like I'd see you, I'd see Gord, like I'd see people walking around. Like it just was like, I don't know, I felt like I was growing up on what people talk about growing up in like New York in like the, the 70s or 80s, not in terms of the violence and stuff, right. but in terms of like, having these people just around you yeah well that's cool and but it was it was nice and I, yeah i think with all things you look at any like i don't know how the nirvana guys you know got together how do how do bands get together they don't audition mm -hmm. from a thousand people across america they're people who went to high school together 
They just they were just they were they were just next door. Oh, that's the way it works. And they and it somehow it somehow worked out. Um, and yes, I, I love all these things. I love that had I not known the shadowy man, I wouldn't have moved to Toronto. Had I not moved to Toronto, there wouldn't have been kids in the hall, I don't think, in the way it was. Um, and if Gord hadn't, you know, grown up in Kingston and known those guys and gone to school with them, like you know, and then here, here, if he hadn't lived two blocks down and we sort of st struck up a really awkward conversation for the first year or so, like, how would we be friends? But that's just, that's just the way it goes. And that's the mysterious part of it that we can't, that that's so interesting that you can only understand when you look back on it. Yeah. Is, is, was Dog Park based on Withrow Park? It certainly was. It certainly was. I, I was when, watching that and walking through that park growing up. I was always like, oh, this has got to be where you got this from yeah it's it's amazing how it just his impact gord downey just like like it's you know like he had to it's not like the kids in the hall like the kids in the hall if you if you you couldn't be into the kids in the hall and not understand the politics of it because the politics were so in your face and i think the tragically hip it it, it wasn't till much later when gord started speaking out a lot more that you could really understand that with them well yes and i think it's you know a a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. I think there's, you know, that riff rock is so good that you don't realize that there's sort of some, you know, I think of a great gourd line, what your apartment does when you're not at, at home does not concern you. I don't know what that means, but that's like a great comedy sketch. There's, there's such you know, and, you know, I directed one of their videos and I was kind of like saying, I, I started saying, so what does some of these lines mean? And Gore just kind of shrugs, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, you can figure it out or I don't know, or somebody knows. Um, but it's, there is a serious kind of message, like a beauty and humanism to coffee girl or something, but um, it's poetry, you know, yeah. it's poetry. And these are songs set to poems. And they're, they're fragments and we don't know what they mean. And sometimes we do sometimes, you know, obviously later on, uh, the apology has a name is about the apology from the first nations people. And I do love that Gord found his, you know, he'd always been a very spiritual and humanistic man. I think that was our connection, you know, wrapped up in a rock star. He didn't want to be a rock star. I call him a rock star just to get him mad. And, um, I think his humanism was always there but didn't, he didn't quite find the outlet for it until, you know, he was a staunch feminist, but also First Nations causes, which he found obviously later in his life. Um, mm -hmm. But what I love is, you know, they, they could sell out 80,000 seats in Edmonton. Kids in the Hall could sell out 4,000. And so everybody who probably wanted to beat me up or a version of that, um, 20 years ago were into the tragically hip and they weren't necessarily bad guys. I think that they were helping, helping Canada become, I'll say it more feminine, more open, more, more inclusive somehow without even knowing it. Mm -hmm. And I guess you need that, you know, like you're saying that, that sugar with the medicine, because, you know, DOA wasn't able to stand on stage and tell Justin Trudeau, you know, or, or at least try and hold Justin Trudeau accountable, you know, like it needed to be a band that kind of permeated everyone's hearts to be able to then have that kind of platform to do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's obviously other bands, Spirit of the West or whatever from Vancouver oh, definitely, yeah. doing that, you know, and my God, let's just say Art Bergman, which was, which was the other band I didn't mention the, uh, you know, the young Canadians I saw many times and they were one of my favorite bands, uh, uh, did they ever come through and they were called the K-Tells or was it after the No, they, the they were just the young Canadians. Let's go to Hawaii. Yeah. Um, yeah. But got a, you know, got an order of Canada. Not that, I, not that as a punk, I care about an order of Canada, but it is interesting that culture has come full circle that Art Bergman, the most, you know, <laughs> I saw some of the darkest shows of his, you know, at the Velvet Underground in the eighties or whatever is like got an order of Canada and yeah. you know, I like it cause he can't sell a lot of tickets and mm -hmm. yet he's deserves 
in some way the order of Canada. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I'm sure he both, it's both repulsive to him and sort of like, yeah, why not? Yeah. Well, and it's like the impact he's had, he deserves that, you know, like on a, on a, on a, like, yeah, what you've done for, for music and for, you know, poetry and things like that. Like, yeah, that's, that's awesome. And you, they, and he survived too. And he survived. Yeah. I've kept you for a long time, Bruce, and this has been one of the coolest conversations ever. You've got great taste, as I said. Would you come back and do a part two at some point in the future? Certainly would. Happy to. Um, Before I let you go, can I ask you uh, briefly, uh, what were your thoughts on Mouth Congress? Um, well, I'm Bellini's always been a genius. I, Scott Thompson, you know, a little of him goes a long way. Um, but uh, I think it's, I didn't appreciate it at first. And then I saw it and it was, it was amazing. It was, mm. it was actually the spirit of punk, which was, and my God, it's gay punk. Come on. There's, there's not enough of that. And so uh, I think they were, I think they're amazing and ferocious. And I know there's a documentary coming out about them. Um, but I think, I think Scott and Bellini together are kind of magic. Well, are you ready to have your mind blown? The label that's reissuing the Mouth Congress record is the same label that put out the Milk and Cookies box set. And, and which which label is that? Captured Tracks. Wow, amazing! No, what a what a full circle moment. Yeah. Um, was Grebo based on Danzig? He certainly was. Were you? Do you ever see the Misfits? Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think where I saw the Misfits. I think that was Toronto. Yeah, I I love them. I like that that's scary punk to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I, I love those guys, but there's still a little melody in there, right? You kind of get my stuff now. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You can definitely hum along to those songs, yeah. like you said. Yeah. And there's also, it's something performative too, about what they were doing. Like, I know it's scary punk, but it's not scary punk in the same way. I guess black flag would have been. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know those guys. Well, I think they're probably pretty good guys. I have no idea. Who knows? They'll probably punch me in the mouth next time they see me. Have you ever thought finally about reissuing or is there any way to kind of get that out there, that, that 50 years special that you did on much music around shame based man? You know, I should find that. I think I have it somewhere. I think Bobby Wiseman, I, I think, you know, Bobby who did blue rodeo and, uh, mm -hmm. and a bunch of his other stuff. Um, I think he has it. I'm going to find that. I'm, and I'm also in the process of getting uh, shame based man back so I can issue that on vinyl. And when I do, I'll, that's when I'll come on your show again. Oh, I'd love that because that record, you know, and we'll talk about this next time, but I think that record is, is so key in people in Canada around my age, getting us into cool stuff. And like, that was such an on-ramp to, to awesomeness. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And it's been what we like to call uh, a punk wouldn't say it, but a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Bruce, for coming on the show. When you heard right there, Bruce will be back. For that part two at some point in the future. There's a lot. Oh my gosh, there's a lot we didn't get to. Uh, oh, but that was fun. That was fun. That's why we do this thing. Again, uh, the records we mentioned, Rock and Roll Bitches, The Modern Minds, and oh, there's a third too. Um, but anyway, those have all been reissued by Ugly Pop. Oh, Modern Minds. Oh, the Hot Nasties, I believe, also. I've all been reissued by Ugly Pop Records, um, which, once again, I believe is is now defunct. I believe Simon called it a day with that. But you hopefully can still track down those records because all those bands are just so classic, so essential. And also, once again, check out Captured Tracks, that Milk and Cookies box set and Mouth Congress. And finally, uh, as we talked about off-air, uh, Reminder Records for that Jax LP. There's so much good stuff coming out. Like, I feel like... Uh, there's just, there's so much incredible, uh, stuff being discovered, you know, like it's, it just never seems to end with this stuff. Like, you know, just mining stuff, people putting out new stuff. God, you gotta love it. Gotta love it. You know, no end in sight. Speaking of no end in sight, there is no end in sight for the fun coming up on this podcast, because on the next episode from the band fun, Nate Roos is here. And this is an amazing episode. Nate is someone who I never met before, but we had a lot of mutual friends. Uh, I have a medical professional in my life that is a unbelievably huge fan. And we have, I don't know, there's, there's a, a lot of stuff. This is a really, 
This is a really interesting episode, a really fun episode. Uh, Nate is, of course, an incredibly talented songwriter and musician. Guy's got Grammys, uh, but he, I don't know, you'll hear it. He walked away. It's its its a fascinating conversation with a really interesting person, and that is coming up on the next episode of the show. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids, and we need to help trans people protect themselves, and we need to stop hate and violence towards Asian people. Basically, we need to just stop fascism. These aren't political issues. These are just human rights issues. These are just people trying to live their lives and and be free. And I think everyone deserves that. So get involved, get informed, you know, donate money to causes that you believe in, educate yourself to what's going on in this world because it's not going to get better on its own. This is something that needs to be changed and it's the role of everyone to do so so uh make yourself something go and make your own culture make yourself a zine make yourself a band make yourself a sticker maybe make yourself something it'll help being creative helps with uh, mental health stuff speaking from personal experience so maybe it'll help you um speaking of helping i find meditation helps me it's worth a try. I didn't believe in that shit. I was like, that's bullshit. That's not, that's going to work. I, oh, how can I sit still? I can't sit still. I can't stop my mind from going. Well, guess what? It worked. And I did stop my mind from going for, for a few moments. Um, and it, and it really does give me a little bit of clarity and balance and yeah, it helps. So to try it, what's the worst that can happen? Sign your organ donor cards. Speaking of worst that can happen, because if the worst does happen, you're not going to care that you, you know, still have your organs when you're dead. So give them away. Maybe they can help someone else and prevent the worst from happening to, to them and the people around them. So kind of morbid, but it, it's the truth. Um, wear a mask and, and stay safe. And that's it. Uh, remember to listen to Oil and Flowers if you enjoy cannabis with Buddha Blaze and myself. And uh, I think that's it. I don't think there's anything else. All right. Stay safe, and I will see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. Love ya. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.